There's a tale that is told of a young prince who was born hunchback. A source of great embarrassment to his father, the king, because he wanted his son to be perfect. And in view of the fact of the imperfection of his stature, he didn't want his son to wander outside the castle grounds to be seen by his subjects and a source of talk. So he built a magnificent garden around the palace where his son could spend his time and never venture out into the world. The son grew up, a marvelous place to live. The father had built ponds filled with fish. He loved to stand and watch the fish swim. A bench under a shade tree where he could sit and read. He loved to read, and reading was one of his favorite pastimes. But there was one highlight in the entire garden that the father had provided for his son. He had a sculpture create an image of his son, beautiful in every manner, perfect in reproducing the features of his son, except for one thing. The sculptor had been instructed to build the statue with his son standing erect, taking away the one imperfection in his son's life. And so the years passed. The young prince spent his days in the garden, but every day he would pause for a while and look up at the statue larger than life, envisioning what he could really look like if he were not a hunchback. The years passed, and one day he made a discovery. He was no longer a hunchback. Every day he had stretched his body looking up at the person he wished he were, and after a period of time he became that person, stretching within toward an idealized look which became his because of his everyday stretching toward that image. There is a person in each one of us that is as perfect as God can create perfection. Each one different as it ought to be. We don't want to have a world filled with everyone who is alike. But in our own individual way, in our own individual personality, there is a person perfect in the sight of God waiting to be released. It's a well-known fact that Michelangelo came upon a piece of marble one day that had been rejected by others who had tried to fashion an image in that marble. He was impoverished. He couldn't afford marble of his own. He pled for that piece of marble, and the city gave it to him. And with the genius of Michelangelo and with the image that he created inside that marble, he chipped away, and that which emerged was the statue of David one of the most beautiful statues on display, created out of a piece of flawed marble, rejected by others, 
the created by one who could see the image that was there and he released all of this is to say Jesus recognized in us the persons that we can be Jesus was never negative about people he didn't look at the bad things scribes, Pharisees hypocrites, yes Jesus was hard on those who were hypocritical and for a reason. You stop drawing when you imagine that you're what you're not. And a hypocrite is one who pretends to be something that he's not. Jesus had no place for that. Apart from that, he was always affirming. He looked at Peter. He was Simon there, Simon of Israel. And he saw inside of Peter the one on whom he could build his church, who would be the prince of all the apostles. And he gave them a name to fit that. He said, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build. Jesus saw within us the person that we can be and yearned to pull it out. And so on the Sermon on the Mount, when he had captive listeners about him, whether they were just the four disciples whom he had called or whether it was a multitude who had followed the disciples, he spoke individually to each as he said, You are the salt of the earth. What greater compliment? We talk about people in the highest terms and we say he or she was the salt of the earth. An expression that lifts that person to a high level. The highest level that one could expect to become. And Jesus applied that to everyone. Not to one singly, but to everyone who is listening and through them to us. You are the salt of the earth. And what does that signify? Well, in the mind of the hearers of his day, it signified certain attributes which were implied in being called the salt of the earth. Always in the Middle East, salt has been revered as very special. As the Greeks said, salt is a result of the sun and water, two purities within themselves. And out of that comes a greater purity. Life depended on salt. I can remember visiting my grandparents' farm, walking out in the fields where the cattle grazed, and there would be a block of salt. And as the youngest time of my life, I wondered what that block was. I probably scraped it with my finger and tasted it and found it was salt. Salt had to be implemented where it didn't come naturally for the health of the animal. Salt was purity in the eyes of the angels. The Christian needs to be pure, pure in thought, pure in words, pure in deeds. There's hardly a more challenging word than to be pure. To be impure is to indicate that there are faults Purity means it is without fault. To seek purity, purity in speech. I've said to you before, 
I was reared in a family that wouldn't allow us to use slang. Have you heard me use a slang word? Let me tell you something. You discipline a child for the first 10 years and he does not escape that discipline. I know there's nothing wrong in using slang, but I can't do it because I was conditioned not to do it. But apart from incidentals like slang, curative language is one of the greatest possessions that we can cultivate. Distresses me the kind of language that we are subjected to in public performances. Words that come across the television screen that as a child would never be heard in our home by anyone. I date back to live television when they didn't film drama and show it as it had been perfected by the camera. It was acted out live. And I remember a GE theater production and the character playing the lead role became so excited in the role that he was playing, he spoke a word that wasn't in the script, a four-letter word. The newspapers were filled because of that word that had been spoken on public television. And what words are not spoken now and accepted? And that's the tragedy of our life today. We can accept the impurity of language and not be repulsed by it. Because it brings images into our mind of things that are not worthy of sight. Gutter language, toilet language, profanity, obscenity has no place in our minds because once that word enters into our minds, there are the connotations of vision and thought that has no place in a healthy mind. Purity of language ought to be a sign of every follower of Christ. Purity of attitude. Our relationships with others ought to be on the highest level. Purity of example. So that when others look at us, they do not comprehend an aspect that they ought to avoid for themselves, but rather see the person I would like to become. We need to reflect the positive appearance, thoughts, and life of Christ himself. To be in an imitation of Christ. That is the highest and noblest order for any Christian in our behavior to reflect that which would be expected of Christ if you were standing in our place. Salt represented to the hearers as purity. But salt was more than that. It was a preservative. Long before refrigeration allowed us to bypass it, salt was the only way that we could preserve foods. And it was vital to the keeping of food that it might not spoil and become bad. It was a preservative. And a Christian ought to be a preservative of the things that need to be kept alive. Tradition is a preservative. I got caught up on the 4th of July because I'm a great patriot. I'm not a politician. I'm far from being a statesman, but I am a patriot. I love the history of my country. After my sharing with you last week, uh, patriotic uh, half lesson 
I went to Barnes and Noble and I bought a DVD on our founding fathers. I wanted to know more about those that I didn't know enough about. And it just inflamed my passion to see how they were so caught up in the things that they were willing to stake their lives upon. One thing that impressed me was that George Washington was the wealthiest man in the colonies. And he was intent on keeping the government out of the hands of the wealthy because of their undue power and influence. <clears throat> Keep it in the hands of the common people. But we preserve in the past of our great nation those qualities, those attitudes that ought to be a part of our present day. <clears throat> I also watched 1776, the state's play yesterday. Carlene and Brad had gone out on an outing and I was home alone. And so I put on the tape. I stopped it at a particular place because in that film, there was a time in which they were being warned against certain things that were being imposed upon the colonies that we're going to rebel against. Four things were brought out. Those four things are active in our society today. We have resurrected the very things that our founding fathers purged. We must keep alive the positive, the worthy of the past in order for it to become a part of the future. Salt is a preservative. And it's flavorful. It brings out the very best in everything. My wife doesn't salt potatoes. <laughs> Can you imagine eating potatoes without salt? So I keep a salt cellar ready so that I can salt my potatoes. Salt brings out the flavor of food, enhances it. And we need to enhance the lives of others by their knowing us. Every person we know ought to be able to say, I'm a better person because he or she is my friend. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And then he said, you are the light of the world. And what is so significant about that, it is what he said about himself. I am the light of the world. And then the very phrase he used to describe himself, he said to those on the hillside, you are the light of the world. Be a light. What an honor. A light illuminates. Doesn't shadow. I love an inquisitive mind. I love fresh ideas. I love original ideas. And I've had some in my lifetime. And I get excited about it when I discover an original idea. But to have the illumination of things that have been kept in the dark. It's a great revelation. And Jesus said of us, you are illumination to the lives of others. You bring into their consciousness the things that they don't know about which they need to know. You are the purveyor of those things that will make the lives of others better. You are the repository of those things yet that can be opened up and shared it will make everybody you know better persons because of who you are. You illuminate. And you are a guide if you are a light. 
a light will bring you to the place where you want to go. Back in the early 80s, my wife, Marion, my first wife and I, were at the Christian Cathedral for a week of training at the Christian Cathedral, as I have shared so many times. But on one afternoon when we had free times, we decided that we'd go out and explore Garden Grove. It was a beautiful afternoon and we walked for hours. It was time to go back. I have no sense of direction. I didn't know how to go back, but I guessed at it. And so we started out to get back to the campus. Darkness began to fall and I searched around to see where I was and far at our backs, was a lighted cross at the top of the prayer chapel against the darkening sky. We were walking in the wrong direction. <laughs> so we turned about and from time to time we looked up to see where the cross was to be sure that we were on earth. It was a light that brought us back when we were lost. We are lights in a world that is so darkened by others. We become lights when we are filled with the radiance of Christ. You are the light of the world to guide others <clears throat> to places they know nothing about. And a light can be a warning as well. One of our favorite places to go to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And one of the things that we enjoy are the lighthouses built at a time when ships were at the mercy of the reefs. And the lighthouses were built to warn them away, to lead them away from the things that were perilous upon the sea. And so the light of spirituality in a person can alert us and warn us away from the things that diminish us and demean us. We, by the words of Jesus, are the light of the world to guide others, to be guided, and to illuminate. Jesus saw the best in us and called for us to release it, to become the persons that he wants us to be. And the sermon goes on. He identifies three things. We talked about the Beatitudes last week. Beyond the Beatitudes, he talked about three things that we must be conscious of. The first of which is almsgiving. Such an important part of our lives is the giving of alms sharing what we have with those who do not have. It was very much a part of Old Testament times that one be conscious of the plight of others and share out of their good wealth with those who are deprived to give alms. But he said about giving alms, do it without show. The motive behind your almsgiving determines the way in which God looks upon it. When we want to be recognized by others and we make a big show of something that we are doing, it is a benefit to society. It's a benefit to the persons who receive it. But it is no spiritual benefit to us because Jesus said God does not bless the giver when he's doing it for show when he wants the world to see what he's doing. Let the right hand give without the left hand knowing it. It's important that it be from the heart and not from a motive of getting credit for it. Almsgiving is important as a role of a Christian. 
but the way in which we are giving of our alms is vital. And then he said, spend time in prayer. Tennyson said, more things are wrong about prayer than this world dreams of. And we're all in agreement with that. <clears throat> we know the power of prayer. If we didn't believe in the power of prayer, we wouldn't invoke God's blessing as Paul did a moment ago so beautifully. And did you notice how positive that prayer was? He thanked God for the beautiful things, the positive things, and it reminded us, yes, life is good. We do have opportunities. And this is a wonderful class. And everybody in this class is a person of worth. These were reminders that came out of his prayer which was so positive, so affirming. We are to pray. It's our communication with God. It's the gift that God has given us to talk to him and to be in communication with him. But he warned us about prayer as well, that it can be a pitfall. He said, do not be showy with your prayers. Do not make a big thing of your praying so that others can remark on your great spirituality because of the way in which you have prayed your prayer. But pray simply. Simply, he said, to the point of going into a room and closing the door. Now, this is private prayer. And there's a place for private prayer. And private prayer is a daily discipline of mine, two and three and four times a day, in which I go apart privately for prayer. There's a place for public prayer because we're praying as a group. That's a pastoral prayer in a service. The pastor is praying on behalf of everyone there, and it is a public prayer. But the main prayer is the private prayer, one-on-one -on -one between us and God. And it doesn't have to be long and wordy and ostentatious. When my firstborn child was born, the doctor had sent me home because he saw that I was going to be a pest. <laughs> he said it'll be hours, but by the time I got home, the phone rang and I was a father. But the first thing I did was to say, thank you. That was all I had to say. I could have prayed on and on, but that said it all. Such gratitude for that gift of birth. Prayer to be real, to be one-on-one -on -one with God in quiet places. And then prayer in groups such as us as we lift the group to God in prayer. But he warns one further thing. Prayers that are wordy and lengthy have little virtue. Pray to the point. Don't try to impress God with your vocabulary. I was serving a church in a small town where the pastor rode to the cemetery in the hearse with the undertaker. He didn't want the procession to be long, so he took out that extra car that would be in procession, and he insisted that the pastor ride in the hearse. And we were in conversation one day going to the cemetery. He was talking about one of my predecessors in that church. He said, that is the most spiritual man I have ever known in my life. 
Now, the undertaker was a member of another denomination. Yeah. He was not a member of the church. But they had gone down into Alabama for a funeral, and they had ridden together with the body. And in the course of their going, they stopped for lunch. And he said, as we sit there at the table, he said to me when the food was brought, let's thank God for this food. And then he said he prayed for five minutes. <laughs> and he prayed in such a voice that everybody in that room heard every word he said. He said, now that means, that's his real faith to be able to pray and everybody hear you for that length of time. Well, that wasn't the kind of way that Jesus looked at it. Long and worthy. So that people can pat you on the back and say, what a magnificent prayer because of the wording, the <coughs> verbiage, and the link. Let it be sincere. Let it be positive. Let it be to the point. And let it be to God and not to the year of those And then on another occasion, he was asked to tell them what a prayer ought to be like. On this occasion, on the Sermon on the Mount, he volunteers. When you pray, this is what you ought to be praying for. You ought to address God as the source of your conversation. Our Father who art in heaven, let him know you're talking to him. And then recognize that God is God. Hallowed be your name. Pray for God's kingdom to come. Don't be content with the way things are in the world. Pray that God's kingdom will come to the world to enhance and recreate it, even as it is in heaven. And we have many needs this day. And all of our needs are supplied by God. Naturally, with the sun, the rain, the changing of the seasons, we have food to eat. We are kept alive by the natural order of things that God has created. We have special needs at times. Many were impoverished in Israel at the time that Jesus was teaching. And he said, tell God what you need to get you through the day. He wants to help you out. Give us this day our daily bread. And then think about your relationships with others. <clears throat> Forgive us our trespasses, our wrongs, and do it with the same spirit by which we forgive others. That's a dangerous line. Are you willing to pray that? Let your forgiveness of me be contingent on my willingness to forgive others who have wronged me. Hopefully that's a safe word for you to say. And if it isn't safe, then be hypocritical. Don't really mean it. Because if you ask God to be limited in his forgiveness of you to the way you have limited your forgiveness of others, you're denying yourself many blessings. Leave it out if you can't be sincere. Forgive us as we forgive others. And there's a world of temptation out there. It's hard to face up to the lures of society, and they are many, and they are brilliantly effective. Now our cries from every quarter of society luring us into places we ought not to go. These are true temptations and no matter how spiritual we become, we never escape temptation because temptation is 
reaching into the inner self, the natural self, the things that we yearn, the things that give us pleasure, many of which are unworthy. Don't let us be lured by temptation. The prayer that Jesus taught us to pray is the ideal prayer in content as to what we ought to ask of God. Ending with a great affirmation, for yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever. Not mine, not the world's, but yours. Now, we pray that prayer every Sunday in church, and will we offer But that's a model prayer. <clears throat> it simply gives us an insight into what our prayer ought to be. The real prayer is the prayer in the room behind the closed door. And the final thing that Jesus brought out in our lesson today is the fact of fasting. When we fast, don't make a show of it. That others might know that we're fasting, but let it be a private thing. Back in Jesus' time, many who were fasting would put on sackcloth. They would heap ashes upon themselves so that everybody will know that they're fasting. And the story is told of one king of Israel. His country was at war. The people saw him out walking every day in his royal robes. An inspiration to the people. And one day the wind whipped back his robe and there was sackcloth. <coughs> He was wearing sackcloth personally while he tried to encourage the people by his outer wear. Fasting is a personal thing with God. Don't fast so that everyone can know that you're fasting, but let it be a private and a personal thing. In the Jewish tradition, there's only one fast day that is required, and that is on the beautiful day of Yom Kippur. At other times, fasting can be indicative of our repentance and expression of our deepest needs, of our grief, of our personal <coughs> relationship with God. These three, he said, let these be the disciplines of your life. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And remember who you are. You are the salt of your You are the light of the world. There's someone in you that might have come out, and if it has, we've recognized it. But if it's yet to come out, it's not too late. Any comments or questions? When you fast, learn to lose weight. I'm not going to use fasting to get the attention of the world. It's not a spiritual fast, it was an open fast. Many other revolutionaries have used fasting as a means of getting the sympathy of This is not the fasting that Jesus was called. It was the fasting that through fasting you become more 
deep necessity because of the things that you have denied yourself is a greater place Jim, you were here last week and I didn't see you because you're not sitting over here. Don't move around over here. Yes. Yes. Well, I'm thinking about the Lord our Roman Catholic brethren did fast on Fridays as far as meat is concerned. Could eat other things. That fast was lifted a few years ago and so it's no longer mandated. But many do fast. And under circumstances like this, we would probably not. But as a part of the discipline of the church, fasting isn't Yes. Um, my grandmother was very Christian woman, sweet and kind in every way. But it, when you said about the lengthy prayers, it, it made me chuckle because every time we would have a holiday, my grandmother had mainly the honor of, of uh, praying, and she had 52 grandchildren, and never to forget about one in the prayer, but all the things that they would do, have done, and just go on and on and on, and it was. It was unbelievable. <laughs> like, okay, girl, got it. <laughs> We're ready. <laughs> if you can remember the names of 52 oh, children, you have the right to them. <laughs> <laughs> I struggle to remember the names of mine. <laughs> <laughs> great grandchildren. I mean, it was all of them, you know, great, great. There's a story told of Dwight L. Moody, who's one of your Bible in England called upon one of the saints to pray, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and kept going. And finally he said, while brother so-and-so completes his prayer, we'll sing something. <laughs> 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 Thank you. Any other comments? That's why I make one comment. What a life you are. Oh, not on them days. Thanks again for watching. We really do appreciate the effort you put into it. Welcome again to our guests. Come again. Hope to see you soon. Have a good week. I'll come back next week. <laughs>